Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Listen, step out. Be willing to be mocked. Be willing to be persecuted. Be willing to be laughed at. Be willing to be considered weak by the world around us. Share in the sufferings for the sake of the gospel. Because why? For the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. You may not have the most exciting testimony, but don't limit its power and what God can do when we step out in faith, willing to tell others how Jesus helped, saved, comforted us. If we have a willing heart, we don't have to worry about how we're going to share the powerful message of the gospel or be scared of what people might say. All we have to do is trust in God and be willing at whatever cost to do His will. With the second part of our opening message out of 2 Timothy, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. We did something called the Past, Present, and Future. It was our, our own kind of a conference thing. Skip did the past. I did the future and Raul did the present. So Raul was supposed to give an altar call. That's what the present was. Remember, we've all invited people out. This is the evangelical night of our past, present, and future. And he says, you Christians are stinking and stagnant and awful. And for the next 45 minutes, he hammers Christians. He just hammers them. How horrible you are. You're not doing what God told you to do. And I mean, Rawl, when Rawl gets off the hook like that, he gets off the hook. And we're all there and you feel bad and you want to repent. And, and, and Rawl's going to town. And this, so then Rawl says, I now want to give you an opportunity to get saved. So now it gives an altar call. Well, the people that have been invited have been now heard Christians thrashed for 45 minutes. And then Raul gives the altar call. 200 people come forward. And, I, and that's the gift of evangelism. That's not how I would do it. But God does what God does. And God uses whom God uses. God uses a Greg Laurie and God uses a Raul Reese and people come to Christ. And if you have the gift, you might think, oh, I'm not the kind of person to be used. Well, Timothy might not be the typical senior pastor, but he was the one God chose. He was the, had the gifts in him and he wanted them to be stirred up. He was a little fearful. And so Paul says, God hasn't given you the spirit of fear, but the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus that God became a man, came to the cross, died on it so that people could be saved. And don't be ashamed of your own testimony either, by the way. Tell your testimony often. Let people know about it. Some of you guys have incredible testimonies. Some of you guys, you were brought to the brink. Some of you were brought to the doorstep of death before God called you. There are some Calvary Chapel pastors and their talk about off the hook. Their testimonies are something. I have a friend of mine, he's a good friend, who's a Calvary Chapel pastor and he was a leg breaker for a drug dealer before he came to Christ. And now he's sharing the gospel every week and his testimony rocks. It's awesome. My testimony, not so much. You have a testimony, I was a leg breaker for a drug dealer. I ran a strip club. And then there's me. Oh, uh, I went to church my whole life. <laughs> Thought going to church would save me, but somebody told me I needed to invite Jesus in, so I did and I got saved. 
It's not a very dramatic testimony. But I'll tell you what, every time I share it, it's moving and it's powerful. Because our testimonies are powerful. Don't be ashamed of your testimony. Do your kids know your testimony? Man, you know, the testimonies we could tell, the ways we came to Christ, the things God did to bring us in. And listen, you don't need to lie about your testimony, okay? Don't go out and embellish it and make it sound like you were a whole lot worse than you really were. (laughs) Just be honest about how you came to Christ. There's something powerful in that. The Bible says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. By the blood of the lamb, not because you know, somebody read that verse and began to plead the blood. You guys ever heard that? When you have some, some, somebody has a demonic thing going on in their life, so somebody else pleads the blood over them. The first time I ever saw somebody plead the blood, um, it was so bizarre. I was shocked by it. Uh, at one place, they used to growl over people and called it pleading the blood. Literally, rad, 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 rad. What are you doing? I'm pleading the blood. Okay. Another place I was at, and this is more common, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood. They chant that. They just got this poor guy that's having some demonic activity in his life. They got him in a chair. I plead the blood, 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 I plead the blood over that guy. It's not what that verse is saying. It says we overcome him by the power of the blood because the power of the blood forgave you your sins. And that set you free from Satan. If you have been forgiven, if all of your sins are forgiven and you are clean and holy and pure before God, what can Satan do to you? You have overcome him by the power of the blood and by the word of your testimony. Spiritual warfare is telling our testimony. Let people know. Tell your testimony often. Be able to share it in a short amount of time. Don't start, you know, I was born a poor white child and wherever you were born, right? (laughs) Or a poor Hispanic child, a poor black child, or whatever fits. (laughs) Don't start with, learn how to tell your testimony. And there's something powerful to it. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul says, don't be afraid of the fact that I'm in chains, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. Listen, step out. Be willing to be mocked. Be willing to be persecuted. Be willing to be laughed at. Be willing to be considered weak by the world around us. Share in the sufferings for the sake of the gospel. Because why? For the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purposes. It's not by our works that we were called. It's not by our works that we say are saved. It's not because of who you are. Now, listen, this is a very important point. We are not saved by works. There's nothing that you can do to be saved. When I give an altar call, I'll have people raise their hands. I'll have people pray a prayer. And if you guys have been, and most of you have been in, I don't know, a few hundred of our altar calls, I'll say, Now listen, if you just gave your life to the Lord, I want you to know raising your hand didn't save you. And praying a prayer didn't save you. But you believed. And because you believed, you prayed a prayer. Because you believed, you raised your hand. And it's the believing that saves you. Because believing isn't a work. It's believing. And so the Bible says in Ephesians, you have been saved by grace through faith, not of any work, lest any man should boast. And I put an emphasis upon that because there are a couple of prominent churches in Tucson that teach baptismal regeneration. That is that you are saved 
when you are baptized. What that does is put salvation on a work. And never does the Bible tell us that we are saved by anything we do. And those churches are not part of mainstream Christianity. They are outside of mainstream Christianity. One of the ways you could identify the churches is the fact that they don't have people from the church in general as part of what they are doing. I'm talking about musicians. I'm talking about like well-known musicians. They don't bring them in. They don't sing those same worship songs that are sung by the church in general because they see themselves as the only ones that have really discovered salvation through baptism. Now listen, if you have not been baptized since you made a commitment to Christ, you need to be. Why do you need to be baptized? Not in order to be saved. That turns into arrogance and works. Yes, I'm saved because I was baptized. We're the only real church. That's what these churches say. They say, you want to know what are the right on churches? Then, and they list the churches that believe in baptismal regeneration because of that. You need to be baptized because Jesus told you to. It's a matter of obedience, not a matter of salvation. You don't need to be baptized to be saved. You need to be baptized because he said to. And you say, yes, sir. And you go get baptized. And it becomes a symbol of what took place inside of you. But you do it out of obedience, which is part of the fruit of real faith. Baptism doesn't save you. It is a sign of what that salvation is. By the way, men that God has given to the church, Charles Swindoll, John MacArthur, uh, Alistair Begg, we talked about James McDonald, Jack Graham, other men that, that God has raised up in the United States as teachers and pastors to lead the church in America. These guys do not see themselves as part of that group. They see Alistair Begg and these others as outside because they do not believe that you are saved by baptism. So we are part of a larger body of Christ. When someone begins to say that they're saved by works, whether it's going to church on Saturday, whether it's being baptized, whether some, some churches believe that you speak in tongues in order to be saved, or any other thing that any men want to add to the gospel, it is all a lie. Paul fought against this his whole uh, ministry. And so over and over again, he would say, it's not of works, it's not of works. And it amazes me with all that the Bible has to say about works, that there are still groups that will declare that you're saved by some work. You're not. Jesus did all the work on the cross and you simply open the door. You simply receive him. You simply receive what he's done for you and believe. And so he says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Before time began, God chose you and he's called you and it's according to the works that he has given us, not according, to, uh, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and his grace. Then verse 10, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How is it that death was abolished? How is it that life and immortality were brought to light? Looking at verse 10, right? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that God became a man, died upon the cross so your sins could be forgiven. And the gospel, the Bible says, is the power of God to salvation. There's no other way anyone can be saved but the presentation of the gospel. And we as the church are called to proclaim that. We're called to preach it. 
And uh, it is through that. And he says in verse 11, to which I have appointed a preacher, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. A preacher is one who proclaims. An apostle is the authority that he's given within the church. A teacher is teaching people the word of God. You need to preach the gospel and you need to teach the Bible. Paul saw himself as both of those. Then he says this, for this reason, I also suffer these things. What things does Paul suffer? Dungeons, chains, because of the gospel. Because he's a preacher, because he's an apostle, because he's a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. From the, the cell, he writes, I'm not ashamed to be here for the sake of the gospel. Are you ever ashamed when you're mocked for being a Christian or when you're persecuted or you're made fun of? Or do you hide it so that you don't let people around you know that you're a Christian because you know that they'll think of you as weak or mock you or persecute you? He says, for I know whom I have believed. Here Paul is in the dungeon and he says, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel for I know whom I have believed. You got a pencil, a pen? A highlighter, a fingernail. <laughs> Mark the word whom, for I know whom I believe. That's Christianity. Paul didn't say, here I am in the dungeon and here I am in chains and I am not ashamed because I know what I believe. It's not about doctrine. It's not about theology. It's not about what he knows. It's about who he knows. And that separates Christianity, real, genuine, true Christianity from everything else in the world. Because everything else in the world is about what you know. We want to argue doctrine. We like to talk about doctrine. People argue theology. You have, you know, are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminianist? Are you, you know, I've got this theology, Reformed theology, or, you know, I, I follow John Wesley or, or D.L. Moody or all these other things. That's all the what. In the midst of dark and difficult days, it's not what you know that will lift you up. It is who you know. That's our relationship with him. That we know him. That we call out to him. That he's there. And lo, I am with you always, Jesus said, even until the end of the age. I know whom I have believed. That's what you need to say. That's what I need to say. Not I know what I believe, but I know in whom I believe. Because doctrines and things can't help you in those dark days, but Jesus can. And so he says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ. He says, I've given you a pattern of sound words, now hold on to them. It reminds me of Galatians chapter one, where Paul says, if anybody comes to you teaching anything different than what I have already told you, let them be accursed. You know what they were teaching that Paul was so upset about in the letter to the Galatians? They were teaching that if you are not circumcised, you can't be saved. Now, we don't have that doctrine floating around too much today. It's still out there. But same thing. They're adding to the gospel. It's Jesus and baptism. It's Jesus and going to church on Saturday. It's Jesus and circumcision or Jesus and keeping the law or Jesus and speaking in tongues that save you or Jesus and saying, I want to be saved in the name of Jesus only that saves you or whatever else doctrine that's out there that's being taught. 
But Paul says, hold fast to the sound words that we have been given. You know, there's a lot of new philosophies, a lot of new doctrines that are being taught. Churches are abandoning the Bible today. Guys are going up into the pulpit without a Bible and bragging about it. They're teaching their new ways and their new philosophies. It's part of the whole emergent church trip. We're emerging. And, and they'll say things like, you really believe the Bible? You really believe that Adam and Eve are real people? You really believe that, that Jonah was swallowed by a whale? You, you really believe that Moses climbed Mount Sinai? Yes, yes, and yes, and yes, yes, yes to about 20 other 30, 40, 50 other questions that you have about the Bible. Yes, I believe what the Word of God says. And we could spend our whole lives trying to learn what the Bible says and never get all we can from His Word. So why would we ever begin to look at the philosophies of men, which in the end are useless? They, they mean nothing. You know, cotton candy is good for a little while. But pretty soon you, you want something more substantial. The philosophies of men are like cotton candy. We taste them and oh, it's good, it's good, it's good. <laughs> but after a while you go, just give me a steak. <laughs> give me the word of God. He says, keep the pattern of sound doctrine, that good thing which was committed to you. See, sound doctrine, the words that Paul had been committed to him, the word of God has been committed to us. It's not up to me to come up with what I want to share with you. I have the responsibility of bringing you the word of God. It has been committed to me and then I give it out to you and then it is committed to you and you now give it out to those that are around you. It's not figure out what you want to believe, figure out your purpose. It's that good thing which was committed to you by the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me. Now Paul turns to a hurt. Those in Asia, that is, would be the area of Turkey today, had turned their back on Paul. Paul had known them, loved them, ministered to them, poured out his life for them, suffered for them. And then they turned his back on him. There's nothing that, that hurts more than the betrayal of people, is there? The betrayal of people is hard. And the betrayal of a Christian is, is difficult. It's hard. And so Paul is upset. And he says, all of these people in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. We don't know these guys. It's the only place they're mentioned. Timothy obviously knew them. Paul wants to say, these guys left me. But in contrast, he says, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. It's been noted that verse 16 is in the past tense. He's speaking of Onesiphorus as not being there anymore. Now, maybe he's not just in Rome or, or maybe he's died. That's been the suggestion that Onesiphorus has died and that Paul now, as he thinks about those that abandon him, he thinks about his friend Onesiphorus who sought him out. He says in verse 17, but when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant him that he might find mercy from the Lord in that day. Now, that's an interesting verse. Verse 18 if Onesiphorus has died, Paul is now praying that Onesiphorus would be granted mercy on the day of judgment. It's an interesting verse. Even if Paul is praying for Onesiphorus, we don't know for sure that he died. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he's dying. Maybe, as I said, he left Rome. Maybe Paul doesn't know where he's at. And so he prays for mercy for his family and then prays for mercy on Onesiphorus on that day. 
But even if he has died, it doesn't mean that we need to start praying people out of purgatory, okay? Don't use this verse and say, see, we need to start holding prayer meetings for the dead. It would be, if he has died, it's no different than standing over someone's grave and saying, God, be merciful. I like what John Corson lost his, his wife when he was very young. And he lost his daughter not long after that car accident. So when John Corson is speaking of this verse, he says, if you've ever lost someone close, then you'll understand standing over a grave and asking God to be merciful. A lot of weird, weird teachings throughout the years about that. Doesn't mean we're praying people into heaven after they die. It simply means that he pours out his heart. God be merciful to him in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Now there's a contrast here as we close this chapter and I'll quickly wrap it up. Here you've got these guys that abandoned him and you got this guy that sought him out. And I want to ask you what kind of fellow Christian you are. Do you love the people around you? Do you know the people around you? Have you taken time to get to know the people around you? The Bible says that we are to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Galatians tells us that we're to bear one another's burdens. I believe God wants us to get to know one another good enough that we can bear with one another and that we can be that person that reaches out to someone in their dark and difficult days. And in doing this, it's hard. It's hard because we like to, we like to make our barriers. It's hard because if I take those barriers away, I make myself vulnerable to you. And now you can hurt me. If I keep my barriers up and I keep you at a distance from me, you can say whatever you want to say about me. I was told right away when I began pastoring, if you can't handle people saying bad things about you, don't be a pastor. Boy, those are some true words, I'll tell you. But if somebody that I don't know says something bad about me, it's like water on a duck's back. It doesn't hurt me because they don't know me. They can say whatever they want to say. They don't know me. But when a friend that I've let into my life says something about me, that hurts. I've now let someone in. We have this self-protective mode. We want to protect ourselves from hurt. And so we keep people out. But in keeping people out, we never fulfill what God wants us to fulfill by loving one another. We got to take the risk. I wish I could tell you, listen, if you open up and you let people in and you step out of your comfort zone and you get to know people and you make those relationships, you're never going to be hurt. But I can't. You're probably going to be hurt. But the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. So if we love one another, God will be able to be with us during those times. And who knows that as you get out of your comfort zone, you begin to be like Onesiphorus and seek someone out because he sought Paul out, right? You begin to be like Onesiphorus and you seek someone out. Who knows that you might not be the one that will be ministered to in the future? Who knows that you might not be the one in the dungeon that needs your brothers and sisters in Christ to rally around you? And it really helps. And since I know it really helps, I find myself saying, Lord, help me to be there when someone else goes through a difficult and a dark time. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the time that we can spend here. We pray that your Holy Spirit would touch our hearts. Lord, we ask that uh, you would just do your work. Help knit us together as we, uh, as we live for you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.